Isaiah is about halfway through your Bible. Um, it's in the Old Testament. And uh, we've been, before our intern Andrew came, uh, we were working our way through Isaiah 40 through 66, and we'd stopped in the uh, Isaiah 52 area before getting into what many consider to be the climax of the book um, of Isaiah 52, um, 13 through 53, 12. Um, I don't quite think this is the climax of the book of Isaiah. I think that's reserved for a little bit later. Isaiah has something at the end a little more in view, but, um, but, we, but this certainly is one of the peaks of this section of scripture. So let's do this. Let's, um, before we read, let's get ourselves an overview of where we were and kind of recapture the history of it, if you will, if you want to do that. And that'll help us understand what we're going to be tackling in the weeks moving forward. Okay, so I, I know I just said turn to 52, but I, I maybe didn't mean that. Let's turn back to chapter 38. Keep your finger in, in 52, okay? Okay, go to chapter 38. I misspoke, 36, okay? So go to 36, okay? And note 36 through 39, okay? You see this little, if you were to look at my Bible, you'd see this tiny little three-page section right here, okay? Isaiah, maybe a visual. My wife says that visuals are helpful, okay? Okay, so here's one, two... I'm going to go all the way back to the beginning of Isaiah. Okay. Here is the beginning of Isaiah. See this? Thick section. This is the middle of Isaiah. Thin little. And this is the end. Thick. Okay? End is thick. Beginning is thick. And then you get this tiny little space in the middle. Okay? That is by design. It's the hinge on which the door, the, the book swings. Okay. The first 35 chapters are written to tell Israel that something bad is coming. Judgment is coming. It's also telling them that the judgment is coming not through Assyria. At the time, there was a, a world power called Assyria, and they were breathing out all sorts of threats. And the first 35 book chapters of the book of Isaiah are, yes, judgment is coming, but don't be afraid of Assyria. They're not the ones that are going to give it. Then you get this little middle section that's this hinge. Assyria arrives and is defeated. And at the end of this little hinge, an innocent little country that nobody's ever heard of shows up envoys from Babylon, and they're present to wish Hezekiah well. Hezekiah had gotten sick. He was the king at the time, and he'd gotten better miraculously. And these representatives of this little nation from a far-off place that nobody had ever heard of show up to say congratulations. And Isaiah says, oh no, that's the nation you need to be afraid of. So here's this giant nation that's a 
uh, a wrecking machine. Assyria, 1 through 35, don't be afraid of them. Tiny little nation right here, Babylon, nobody's ever heard of them yet. They're the ones you need to be afraid of. In fact, Isaiah says, they're the ones that are going to judge you. They're the ones that are going to be God's instrument. He's going to use them in his hand to purge you, to judge you, to lead you off into exile. Okay? So, let's get a few dates down so that we can kind of orient ourselves to how this book shapes out. Uh, Hezekiah is the king of Judah, and it's about 700 B.C. Okay, it's about 700 B.C. Uh, this is, of course, 700 years before the time of Christ. And Babylon is going to begin its judgment of Judah and Jerusalem. It's a long, drawn-out process that begins in about 609 and ends dramatically in 586. Okay? So there's kind of a long, drawn-out period. But when Hezekiah is king, we're at 700, and the judgment doesn't begin until approximately 600. So we've got a century, right? We've got a whole century of historical development. Hezekiah is going to be long dead. Um, his, one of his great-great-grandsons is on the throne. Um, so you've got Assyria, a hundred years, Babylon is on the scene, and they have this long and extended sort of siege of Jerusalem. Before that, they're, they're, they've already, in effect, kind of already conquered Jerusalem. It's a long, drawn-out process that reaches its climax in 586, when Jerusalem fully and finally falls and the exiles are fully carried off. Now, there's another event that we need to be aware of. That is the date 538, okay? 538 is the date that Cyrus tells Jews they can go back to Jerusalem if they want to, okay? So let's review these dates. Assyria is coming. Are they the ones to be feared? No, that's 700 BC. I'm going to use round numbers here just for the sake of ease. So 700 B.C., Assyria comes knocking. God says, don't worry about them. They, they won't even shoot an arrow over the wall. Okay? 100 years later, Babylon shows up, and Babylon is going to carry the people off. And then 60 years later, the Jews are allowed to go back through the hands of a man named Cyrus. Now, why are those dates important? Those dates are important because Isaiah predicts them all. He predicts them all. He tells Hezekiah in chapter 36 and previously, don't worry about Assyria. And so you get this very short um, fulfillment. It, it, Isaiah prophesies, in the next few weeks, this isn't going to happen. Okay. Isaiah then prophesies, also, a hundred years from now, Babylon is going to carry you off. 
And then Isaiah again prophesies, when you get carried off, I don't want you to worry because you will be returned. And he calls him out by name. You will be returned by a man named Cyrus. And that was 180 years off. Or not off in the sense of mistaken, but that was 180 years away. So do you guys see the significance of this? Okay. Isaiah says, don't worry about Sennacherib two weeks from today. Guess what happened? Sennacherib got destroyed and he ran off with his tail between his legs. Isaiah says, worry about Babylon 100 years from now. Isaiah says, but don't worry too much because God's going to return you through the hands of a king named Cyrus. Which would be like, which would be like, imagine if Abraham Lincoln had said during his presidency, one day a man named Joe Biden will be the president of the United States. You'd say, that's pretty good. That's about the same amount of time that Isaiah was calling his shot into the future. Now, why am I laboring, belaboring this point that Isaiah predicted accurately Sennacherib's fall, that Isaiah predicted accurately um, Babylon's rise, and that Isaiah predicted accurately to the name Cyrus's return of the exiles? Why am I pointing that out? Why am I belaboring that? Why does God belabor that? Well, the answer is in chapter 52. So let's turn back there. The answer is that Isaiah has more prophecies to give. And this time he's going to reach farther into the future. He's going to reach this time 700 years into the future. He's got more prophecies after this that are going to reach even farther ahead. But this is one, but those are prophecies that leap beyond even us. Isaiah has some prophecies for seven centuries later. And how many times has he already proven himself? He's already proven himself three times, right? So, let's see what this prophecy is. Isaiah 52 Let's go to verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Okay, what does it mean that he's going to be high and lifted up and that he's going to be exalted? As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouth because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he's heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. 
He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, upon him the chastisement that brought was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before his shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of God to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Okay. This is obviously a famous passage. Now, who is this predicting the arrival of? The Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to interpret it with that light. We're not going to do it inductively and show you all the ways, but we're going to do some of that. How many years out was Isaiah predicting this? How many years out was Isaiah predicting this? 700 years. Seven centuries out. Now, we're not going to try to cover all that's here uh, in the time that we have left today. Okay? What I see here are several themes, and we're going to cover the first two. Okay, there are several themes in this section of Scripture that Isaiah so carefully prophesied 700 years previous to Jesus. The themes are this, prophecy, sin, substitution, humanness, resurrection, severity, and worldwide acceptance. We'll cover the bulk of those next time. But today, we're going to cover prophecy and sin. Prophecy and sin. Those are two main themes in this section. Now, what I want you to do is ignore that number 53 for the time being. Okay? Honestly, I don't know. The scripture was written, and later on, many centuries after it was written, people came in and put the verse references in there, the chapters and verses. And I would say, by and large, 
they're tremendously helpful because I can say, turn to Isaiah 52, 13, and you can get right there, correct? But sometimes those divisions aren't exactly right. Um, there's some famous examples. This is one of them, okay? So just ignore that 53. The thing you need to remember is it's 52, 13 through 53, 12. 52.13 through 53.12. It kind of inverts, and when I was quizzed on this as a student, that was always easy for me to remember. Okay, 52.13 to 53.12. And one of the major themes of this is the foretelling of what this servant will do. The foretelling of what this servant will do. Even, even that word servant, I don't have this written down, but do you guys remember when we were working through the book of Mark, what the theme verse of the book of Mark was? Jesus says, I came not to be what? To be served, but to do what? To serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So Jesus is saying, right, in, in the book of Mark, the servant that you're looking for, that's me. He's connecting service with ransom, service with payment. I came not to be served. I came to be this servant and to give my life a ransom for many. Look at what it says here in 52.14. We're just going to work through these verses. One of the prophetic elements of this passage is that it foretells the gruesome death of Jesus seven centuries prior. And as many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. This is referring, of course, to the fact that Jesus was beaten and struck on his face so many times by those Roman soldiers. And when you read those stories in the Gospels about Jesus being paraded in front of the company of soldiers, sometimes we get the impression that it's a handful of soldiers, 15, 20 at the max. But there's some precise Roman numbers, and there were probably three or four hundred Roman soldiers. And they each would go and just smack Jesus and punch him in the face and deliver blows. His face, no doubt, swelled up. Have you ever watched a boxer who's been in a really tough fight in the post-game press conference? His face is puffed and red and swollen, and the man beating him was wearing gloves. They also took Jesus and they flogged him. This is a Roman practice of long strips of leather with rocks and hooks and bits of metal. And they whipped the man's back with this, this, this flogging device in the back. All the flesh is ripped off of it. Jesus was so badly beaten that people couldn't look at him. They turned their eyes away because of how gruesome it was. I remember as a child, I was at my cousin's house, and my, my oldest cousin had gotten in a fist fight. And he got the worst of it. And his nose was just bloody. And when I saw my oldest cousin, who I thought was the toughest dude around, with a bloody nose, I ran because of the sight. And this was Jesus, utterly beaten. People are turning away. 
The next point of prophecy that's fulfilled is the fact in 53.2 that this servant is going to be human. And now that's astonishing, believe it or not. Jewish people didn't know what to do with this at the time of Jesus. They didn't understand how the servant could be the one who rules and reigns forevermore, as we'll find out later, how this servant, the Holy One of Israel, could be Yahweh himself. They, they thought that maybe there were a few different servants that they should be looking for. They couldn't understand that the, the servant, the Holy One of Israel, the Lord himself, would also be a man, and they were really struggling to put these together. So look at right here, verse 2. For he grew up before him like a young plant. This person will grow up. In fact, in Isaiah 7.14, we're told that he'll be born of a virgin. He'll be like a, dry, like a root from the dry ground. You guys have seen this. You go out after the, the, the snow has just barely thawed off of your, your lawn, and uh, everything around it is kind of brown and dry and crusty, and you've got this one shoot of tulip coming up out of the ground. And it's green, and it's this contrast between everything else. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. It's not saying that Jesus was ugly or this coming servant would be ugly. It's just that he was ordinary. Nobody looked at him and went, oh, yeah, mm, that must be the Messiah, I mean, look at him. He glows. Or he, he stands three feet taller than everybody else. He shoots fire, lightning out of his fingers. Nothing like that at all. We're told, as a matter of fact, previous to this, that he's not going to raise his voice. A bruised reed, he, he's not going to break. You're, you're walking along the path, and you see one of these cattails that's gotten bent over in the middle of the path. And the easiest thing to do in all the world is just take it and rip it off and throw it away, get it out of the path. The reed that's holding that cattail is bent and it's bruised. Jesus doesn't break those. He's so, he, just, he doesn't do that. A smoldering wick, he doesn't lick his fingers and quench it out. He fans it back into flame. There's nothing particularly special about him. Nobody looks at him and his bearing and is blown away by what he looks like. He's perfectly human and plain. He's perfectly plain. Do you remember how this was fulfilled? Remember how this was fulfilled? Do you remember what the Jewish response to Jesus was? Aren't you from Nazareth? Has anything good ever come out of Nazareth? <laughs> we know who your mom and dad are. You're just a kid from a small town. Who do you think you are? He was just plain. How did Isaiah know this? Let's look at 53.5. How did Isaiah know this 700 years in advance? He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Those are all fairly plain. Um, Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. There is another translation for crushed 
it's the word pierced. He was pierced. Um, I believe the, does anybody have a Holman Christian standard on them? I thought I saw one of those floating around. Oh, it was Andrew Kester, and he's down with the teens. He has a, a Holman Christian standard. The idea is pierced. It's run through. He was pierced. Of course, Jesus was pierced through his hands and through his feet. Um, when he was dead, they wanted to make sure he was good and dead, so they pierced his side, and water ran out. Isaiah 53, 7, He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to a slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. This is, of course, predicting that Jesus would say nothing in front of Herod, that Jesus would hold his tongue, that he would keep silent. Jesus didn't defend himself before the Pharisees. They said, tell us plainly, are you the Messiah? The only thing he did was quote scripture. In fact, he quoted the book of Daniel. When Jesus was arrested in the garden, he said, who are you looking for? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. And all he said was, That's, I'm, I am. And everybody fell down at his declaration that he is God. And he allowed them to bind him and carry him off as though he couldn't melt those handcuffs or whatever they put him in like wax. As though he couldn't say a word and have all of them disappear. We're told that Jesus holds all things together by the word of his power. And so Jesus is holding together the things that make you up. All he had to do was determine to release those and those people would have been lost into the ether. He held them together as they arrested him and as they led him off without a word. Look at verse 9. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Do you hear that? They made his grave with the wicked and the rich man with his death. There was a place they were going to put him, a place for wicked men after they crucified him. But who stepped up to offer his tomb? Who stepped up? Anybody remember? Joseph of Arimathea. He was a rich man. He had recently had a, a grave dug out. Now, how many of you own your grave plot already? Okay, you own that little piece of real estate already. Nobody? Okay, good. You're not planning on... Okay, good, good. Well, these things weren't cheap. These things weren't cheap. It, this was the burial of a rich man. Turns out, you know, Jesus died without a penny to his name. Do you realize this? He didn't own anything. The clothes that he had on his body, they auctioned off. <laughs> he died with nothing, and yet he was laid in a rich man's grave. But Jesus, turns out, was only going to borrow it for a few days. <laughs> He was assigned a plot with wicked people and was buried in a rich man's tomb. Do you think Joseph of Arimathea knew this passage when he did that? I don't think so. Maybe, maybe not. But Isaiah knew it 700 years prior. 
none of the Jews around him thought to say, oh, don't do that, lest he fulfill Isaiah 53, 11. No, God was in charge and fulfilled it. Isaiah 53, we're, we know Isaiah 53. If I were to say to you, for those of you who've walked with the Lord for many years, what do you know about Isaiah 53? You would have said, oh, he's crushed for our iniquities. He's bruised for our transgressions, right? You would have, you would have gotten that one really fast. But would you, have, would you have known that Isaiah 53 predicts resurrection too? Okay, let's look at verse 11. Out of the anguish of soul, out of the anguish of his soul, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see. He shall see and be satisfied. So he's going to die, but other translations have it this way. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see the light of life. He shall see the light of life is another translation. And he shall be satisfied by his knowledge. Uh, by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. There, even though he's he's got this grave with the wicked, and he's going to die, and he's going to be buried with the rich man. He again will see, and in that seeing, in that resurrection he will be completely satisfied with a job done. Okay. When Jesus said it's finished, he knew that he had fulfilled all the Lord's commands upon him. He went into that grave and came back three days later, and there's no unfinished business left to attend to. You can see that even in his demeanor. When he meets the disciples... He's just like always like, hey, greetings, I'm here, you know, good day. There's no unfinished business. He's been resurrected, and it's done. And then this one's astonishing. Isaiah 53, 12 predicts that he will intercede for rebels. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressor, transgressors. There's two ways that Jesus fulfilled this. What's one of them? What were some of Jesus' final words? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Was he right there in that moment in his death throes interceding for the transgressors? Well, of course he was. What was he doing just a few hours before in the Garden of Gethsemane? He was praying for us. He says specifically there, I'm not praying for the world, I'm praying for my people. Now, are you transgressors? Well, I am. I don't know about y'all. <laughs> He's praying for me. He's praying for you. Or, in the book of Hebrews, we're told that our high priest ever lives to make intercession for us. His intercession for transgressor, transgressors didn't stop 
when he was on the cross. He continues that praying ministry for us now that he's at the Father's right hand. Again, how many years out did Isaiah see this? 700 years. Seven centuries. Seven centuries out. Our second theme. Yes, sir. You know what? Let's, I'm going to answer questions, and we're going to... I can't develop this theme in the amount of time we have left, so let's just take questions on this, and we'll, we'll, I'll be a little bit ahead for next week's lesson. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. We're actually told about that in the book of Acts. Um, before Jesus ascended into heaven, he breathed on them and opened their eyes to see. And from that point forward, you start to see the disciples making all the connections. The very next time Peter stands up, he connects Joel 2 and Psalm 6 to Jesus. You will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. That might not be Psalm 6. I'll have to look that up. Pretty sure it is. But you see Peter making, like he receives that gift from Jesus and suddenly... He starts making those connections. At what point did they see it all fully? I don't know. My guess is it was an ongoing thing. They were like, oh, this one, and this one too, and that one too. You know what I mean? But it, it started to emerge to them after that moment. Before that, they were, they were pretty blind to it. Yes, and that just goes to show that, that understanding is spiritually attained. Um, wisdom is not knowledge. Knowledge can be gained with study, but wisdom is spirit wrought, and they needed spirit wrought wisdom to understand the word. There's a lot of very smart people that are blind. Yes, Danielle. No, no. But that's why I pointed out to you that he predicted Sennacherib's fall correctly two weeks out, Hezekiah's recovery one day out, um, Babylon 100 years out, Cyrus 180 years out. The reason God allowed him those sort of immediate and intermediate fulfillments was so that when it comes to this, you go, oh. Yes. Yep. That's right. It's mostly for our benefit, somewhat for theirs. But you see, there's an even greater fulfillment coming where Isaiah starts talking about what heaven is going to be like for us and what he wants us to do is say oh if he was right 
here, 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 and here, he must be right here too. And that's faith. You know what I mean? And when we get to heaven, we'll look back and go, how could we have missed that? <laughs> you know? But that, that's the point. That's why God gives him all those fulfillments so that when it comes to future things, we go, that's it. He must be right. Because he was right in everything else. Great question. Another one. Yes, Elaine. A couple things about that. Jews today say that Isaiah is not scripture. So instead of that the Torah, the law, is scripture, and this is commentary, but it's not as good as Torah. And so in doing that, they'll sort of reinterpret it. So yeah. Mm-hmm. They just don't pay attention to it. Pretty much. Yep. They would put it in a, like a lower category of scripture on the level of like commentary. Helpful stuff that can be mistaken. There are, okay, so um, these are great questions. Um, I am by no means a modern Jewish expert. Um, a few things I know. There is a, a dizzying array of stripes and streams within Judaism from extreme Hasidic uh, conservative to very liberal, essentially atheistic. And, there, and it's almost everything in between, okay? Um, so I think to answer your question, people will answer that differently. Some Jewish people believe that this was the Holocaust, okay? That this suffering servant is a metaphor for the nation who got disfigured but survived. Yes. Yeah. You can go to, say, like, New York City and be in a neighborhood where, you know, you've got um, the most conservative Jewish elements, um, dress, diet, everything. In fact, they speak Hebrew in their neighborhoods. They don't speak English. Um, I w when I was in Jerusalem many years ago, <laughs> I, I saw a a Jewish young man looking up Yankee scores in Hebrew on the computer. Um, his friend spoke English, and I said, you root for the Yankees in Jerusalem? And he goes, and his friend said, well, he lives in the Bronx. <laughs> I 
And I was like, he doesn't speak English? And he's like, why would he need to learn English? <laughs> he lives in the Bronx. Come on. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or, and then you just go a block away, and you've got ethnic Jews, but they, they're atheists, you know, and are as um, left-wing liberal as you can imagine. And then just down the block, you've got extreme conservative Jews that don't even bother to learn English when they live in the Bronx. <laughs> I'll, well, I'll show you something. Okay, hold on one second. So this is a, a thing, uh, a mirror. Uh, I bought it in New York City, and uh, you, you're welcome to come up and look at it if you want. Uh, and the reason I bought it in uh, New York City was I found the exact same thing in Jerusalem. Um, and uh, this is, uh, I can't remember what the significance of the mirror is, but this little engraving right here is that they're to bind the Torah on their bodies. And so they have these little boxes with these straps, and they put little scraps of Torah in these boxes right here, and then they literally strap it to their person. Um, I don't remember what the significance of the mirror was. There's a significance to the mirror. I'll have to look that up. But I bought this because... I bought it in New York, and I had seen it just a few days earlier in Jerusalem, and I thought it was an interesting um, thing. It's kind of one of those weird things that pastors buy. So don't trust a pastor with your money. There you go. Um, I'll probably buy books or a leather-wrapped mirror, okay? Um, so you can check this out if you want. But. All right, let's pray, and uh, we'll get ready for uh, worship. Father, thank you so much for Isaiah 52 and 3. Um, they point so clearly to our Savior who suffered for us. As many of our hearts have already done, our hearts run to your covenant people, uh, the Israelites, the Jewish people. And they have this message right in front of them. And I pray that they would soften their hearts to their Messiah. Lord, we're one of the privileged nations. We're one of the privileged peoples that have come under your kingdom by your grace. We've been grafted in, uh, as Paul explains to us in the book of Romans. Um, and uh, we rejoice that you so clearly showed what your servant would do 700 years prior and beyond. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.